Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. People like to introduce novelist Abdul Razak Gurna as a writer who tackles the traumas and after effects of colonialism in East Africa. But in accepting the Nobel Prize for Literature last year, he made space for the fullness of all lives. Writing cannot just be about battling and polemics, however invigorating and comforting that can be, he said. Writing is not about one thing, not about this issue or that or this concern or another. And since its concern is human life in one way or another, sooner or later, cruelty and love and weakness become its subject. We'll talk about those things, his gorgeous novel, Afterlives, which is being published in the U.S. this month, and much more. Stay tuned for an hour with Nobel Prize winner Abdul Razak Gurna after this break. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Zanzibar. To my ears as a West Coast kid, almost no place rings with as much intrigue and raw distance from the exurbs and office parks of California. That's where Abdul Razak Gurna was born, this small archipelago that's a fraction of the size of the Bay Area, located off the coast of what we now call Tanzania. It was a place of many cultures and languages, indigenous religious practices, Islam, Christianity, globalizations past, dominions won and lost over the centuries. Gurna's new book, After Lives, which is being released in the U.S. after his Nobel Prize win last year, is set along this coastline in an unnamed town near the sea. It explores the effect of German colonialism, that empire's wars against local people and the British, and the conflicts it touched off in the minds of residents. But it's also a gorgeous novel about caretaking, the way individuals choose to help each other find whatever happiness they can, for reasons both obvious and obscure. I'm delighted to have gotten to read this work, Abdul Razak Gurna, and thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. So I know that you resist the urge that many reviewers and interviewers have to use your background or simple identity markers to describe who you are. So maybe we should start with the opposite. Like You look in the mirror in the morning. How do you narrate how your life has gone and who you are? Uh, well, I look pretty familiar to myself when I look <laughs> in the mirror. I think that's the guy I've been seeing for the last 75 years or so, 73 actually, years. Uh, but what you mean is what, what kind of identity and that kind of thing I would describe myself as, I suppose. Or really like non-identity, you know, how you, how you see the way you see the world from the inside out. See, we grew up at a time of decolonization. I grew up at a time of decolonization in a small island, which was already pretty mixed up with 
terms of uh, history and race and so on. Like a lot of uh, places that are kind of uh, literal, that is to say, you know, kind of sea, sea coast places, uh, mm -hmm. All along that Indian Ocean, you find people who, are, who speak many languages, who have many ancestries, because the Indian Ocean is that kind of ocean. People travel across it, and have been traveling across it for a long, long time, all the way from China, all along the uh, South Asia, um, certain Saudi Arabia and Somalia and so on. So we are used to people not being easily kind of identifiable as this, that, or the other, you know, people are. That's what the, you know, was Swahili. Swahili means coast, people of the coast, the language of the coast. So there is this kind of pride that people have, that they speak of themselves as people like that, mm -hmm. people of the coast. So when I look at myself, I think, yeah, that's, that's who you are. You're one of them. <laughs> so this cosmopolitan place, this place that's connected to, to many places in the world through the these oceanic connections. As you were growing up, where did you see those tightest bonds from where you were to sort of where you could get or where where these kind of metaphorical trade winds could carry you? Yeah, they're not things you learn at once because uh, communities are still divided despite being kind of rubbing shoulders with each other. Uh, there's still... Um, you know, I grew up in a place where you could walk from down one street where there is a, a Sunni mosque, down another street, there's a Shia mosque, another street, there's a Nibabi mosque, there's a Hindu temple, there's an Austrian temple, there's a church, there's a whatever. You know, I'm sure there are many places you know, or at least if you don't know them personally, in the United States that are also like that. Mm -hmm. usually, they're, usually they're coastal places. They're places where people come and go and sometimes stay. Um, so like us, so that's what I'm really saying about the coast. So this coast is full of people, but when you're a child, you belong to your own community. You, know? you belong to your own area uh, until you go to school and then you meet other people and then the world opens up slowly. So slowly, 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 you begin to understand the bigger world, even in a small island, the bigger world you live in, let alone when you actually leave the island, you see how big the world really is. So, I, I grew up thinking everything was fine. <laughs> everything was good until things are not good. Yeah. You know, as you describe this place of at least a, a baseline religious tolerance um, and some class and ethnic differences, you said in a recent interview, and I thought this was just so fascinating, you said, I'm not sure if there is a benign form of belonging um, what, what did you mean by that? Did you mean that these different groups in, in sort of increasing their inward community uh, and sense of belonging uh, are become no, no, no. dangerous? Or, or Yeah, go ahead. No, 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 I don't think I meant there. I mean, meant really, I suppose, I, I, I can't remember what I said in what interview. Man. Come on, take it easy. <laughs> I'm, talk, I'm talking all the time. <laughs> But I think what I would have been talking about is after relocating, not about where you are, but after relocating, then when people begin to think about where do I belong, um, I think I'm saying that there isn't a form that says, I kind of quietly belong to Argentina or mm -hmm. I belong to England. Or whatever. There's always a conflict. I live in New York. 
that I belong to Argentina. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't kind of work exactly. You belong. Um, you can't. So in that respect, I think I was arguing for a more complex idea of what belong means. That is, mm-hmm. you belong to both these places in, in, in complicated ways. You live there, you work there, you think there, you imagine there. You live there in your mind, wherever it is that you left behind. Uh, I think I was probably talking about that rather than um, rather than where you are. I mean, certainly when you are young and where you live and where you're surrounded by your family and your friends and your schools, and that is utterly benign in most places. Unless you are lucky, <laughs> but that is benign. You know, even people even people who live really difficult lives, that is probably the most intense um, well, time that they spend that sense of just completely, utterly belonging to the place. However rubbish it may look to somebody who doesn't belong there. Mm-hmm. And what about, you know, you came to England as an 18-year-old. What were the years like, these, this kind of great stretch of your life, which oftentimes gets skipped over in biography, kind of, you know, you arrive in England and then you're winning the Nobel Prize. And then there's all this work that you've, that you've done. Um, how do you, looking back on those years, like what stands out for you now? Well, I don't know who's been skipping through that because <laughs> I've lived through those years and I know they were not skippable like that. Uh, no, they were fine. You know, you uh, fine in the sense that ultimately the result is good. Uh, the result is that it comes through. Um, I, you know, 18-year-old stranger in a country, you know, without money, without knowledge, without skills. Um, nobody particularly wants you. Uh, and also it's, it's different, I think, where with a, a nation like yours, where despite your many um, dislikes of each other, somehow you're used to the idea of uh, people coming from different places. Mm-hmm. But when I arrived in England, uh, it, was not, it was not a welcoming place for people who were coming from the part of the world like I came from. Mm-hmm. Um, but that wasn't all. That wasn't all. I was 18. 18, everything was exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, even strangeness, even poverty was exciting. Um, so all of those things have their own adventurous dimension. It's just this, uh, it's difficult to be frightened and unsure and anxious uh, about what, what will happen next. Mm. But that's, uh, I mean, that's what I admire also about uh, the way people cope, um, the human spirit, if you like. Uh, so many people go through all these experiences difficulties, disease, war, violence, and so on. And then when opportunity is afforded and available, they make something. They make something of their lives. They move on. They send their kids to school. They start a bit of work. They, whatever. It's really admirable that people do that. Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, in reading your book, which is you know being published here in the U.S. this month, uh, originally came out in 2020 in the U.K., there's so much of that daily life. And I thought maybe you could paint a picture of the town where this, where this story is unfolding for people who've maybe never been to that part of the world. Yeah, it's not really difficult. The reason I don't name the town, because it's useful sometimes for, for, 
for me anyway as a novelist is just simply leave the town um, <laughs> unnamed because um, um, a lot of readers, if you name a place, you know, they want to go and look at the map and see where it is <laughs> and connected to wherever it is, that's whatever. And then they, they come back and say, well, it's not possible. That couldn't have happened like that because when you look at the map, you can see it's not, you know what I mean? Yeah, but, there sure. enough, but there are enough clues there uh, for somebody who's, who's interested or wants to research a little bit to, to locate both the town, because there are various, those battles are named, the, you know, the mountain range is named, this is named, this is named. So you could go look up the town as well. But uh, it would have been um, one of the coastal towns, um, the, the Deutsche West Africa colony, as it were, only lasted for 30 years. Uh, and uh, essentially, they established, uh, or rather developed, existing two existing port towns, one was Aslam, one was Tanga, uh, and they built a one railway line, uh, which was which is referred to in the novel, which was from the coast to the Kilimanjaro area. So, I mean, I think with, with minimal amount of research, you can do the geography of where those towns were <laughs> and what was happening there. And it was a very short period, um, but they occupied themselves making war all the time during that period and making coffee plantations <laughs> on, the, on the mountains uh, in um, the mountains of Kumajara, which they, which still work, which are, they're still there, they're still produced, and some of them still owned by German settlers who did not who did not actually leave, uh, but the coastal towns have changed completely from from that time. We're talking with Nobel Prize-winning novelist Abdul Raza Gurna about his novel, Afterlives. I, I have to say, for me, Afterlives was a book that really expanded my sense of the world and how it works. And what's a book that's enlarged your sense of the world? We'd love to hear from you. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking with the Nobel Prize-winning novelist Abdul Razak Gurna about his novel, After Lives. Abdul Razak, maybe you could set up some of the characters in your novel a little bit. We first meet Khalifa. Uh, tell us about him a little bit. Yeah, well, um, I should, I'll take another route, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, um, when I began writing the novel... 
with uh, Hamza as um, my starting point. Mm. That is, he returns to his uh, guy who uh, joins uh, volunteers, joins the German colonial army, fights the war, is wounded, and returns. So this was my starting point. Mm. Um, but it's the wounded that I wanted. It's the mm. fact that he returns wounded, traumatized. Um, and I also wanted uh, to have another person, a woman uh, who is traumatized in a different way. Mm. And I wanted these two traumatized people to, because I'm interested in the idea of how people retrieve something from trauma. Mm. Um, so I wanted also this woman who's, who's traumatized by different experiences, different experience of being a woman, basically, mm -hmm. in, 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 a, in circumstances that um, are oppressive to uh, women, not to say it's to do with Islam or anything like that, but circumstances in particular that are oppressive to her. Mm -hmm. And I wanted these two to meet, and I thought, you know, this will be the story, uh, and that these two would then uh, speak about their experiences as kind of backstories, if you like, and uh, this will be a way in which they would uh, give each other the comfort and, and necessary, you know, to to make new lives for themselves. Um, but uh, I, but I changed my mind, and so in, instead I would actually show the experiences so that we see the uh, the girl, the child, who mm -hmm. becomes the woman, a fear going through her experiences, and we also see what happens to Hamza as a as a soldier and circumstances. And, by the time they meet, we already know all about their experiences. Mm -hmm. So in, in Khalifa became necessary then as the person who would bring them together. Mm. He would be the one who's already there in the town. And he's the one who, would, who does, in fact, um, rescue Safiya from the circumstances she finds herself. He's the one who offers shelter to Hamza. Mm. But he's also quite a difficult customer himself. Mm -hmm. So these three then become the ways in which in some kind of grumbling, difficult way people learn to cope. Yeah. Why don't you read us a passage from the book? I believe it's going to be when Hamza arrives back in the town after the war. Okay, I'll do that. It's a pleasure. Their boat rounded the breakwater in evening twilight. And then Ahosa ordered the sail lowered as he made a cautious approach into harbor. The tide was out, and he was not sure of the channels, he said. It was after the Kaskazi monsoon, and in the period before the winds and the currents turned southeasterly. Heavy currents at that time of year sometimes shifted the channels. His boat was heavily laden, and he didn't want to get stuck on a sandbank or to hit something on the bottom. In the end, after debating the matter with his crew, he thought it was too dark to approach the quay in safety. So they dropped anchor in shallow water and waited for morning. There were lights on ashore and a few people moving about on the quay. Their elongated shadows stretched out ahead and behind them in the gloom. Beyond the quayside warehouses, the town sprawled, and the sky was amber from the glow of the setting sun. Further to the right, the dimly lit shoreline road shaped away towards the headland, which after a while ran out to the darkness of the country. Hamza remembered that from the time before, 
how the road ran past the house where he lived, and how then it narrowed down to the tight aperture that opened out into the interior. This moment where Hamza is arriving, broken and in pain, is this actually, this was the initial start of the novel, perhaps? Yeah, yeah, this is where I started. Um, like I said, because I was going to make mm-hmm. them, make him arrive, meet Afia, and then the two of them talk about what had happened. Mm-hmm. But as, as it now is, it's now part three, because uh, actually the earlier parts showed them Are, going yeah. through the experience that we have talked about. Yeah. You know, this, the moments right after this, as Hamza kind of wanders into town, they, they raise one of the really central questions of the book for me, which is like, why do people do each other kindnesses? <laughs> you know, so, sometimes uh, books will meditate on like, why evil? This, this book seems like it centers around not just why evil, but like, why, why kindness? Well, because that's what we actually do. We actually do that more often than um, than books tell us, if you like. But we also do it much more often than we even like to admit. We do it in a kind of uh, surreptitious way. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, we do kindnesses because you know small small acts sometimes. Um, I don't know if you are <clears throat> ever in a position to to look at somebody and recognize. I don't know, we're rushing around so much these days, but this is a small place and a small a small event takes place. Somebody walks into the yard and he's, you can see he's wounded. You can see he's um, okay, probably, from the look in his eyes or from the way he's speaking to you. And you can see he's in need. And you think, well, maybe I can help him. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have to be a grand gesture. It's these small things that we do. Um, and I don't know, maybe some uh, some situations, people in some situations are more hospitable in a human way than in other situations. I remember once, uh, which may seem an unconnected story, but anyway, I remember once uh, some years ago, uh, a neighbor uh, of ours in Zanzibar when I was there visiting, uh, who was an old friend of my mother, quite an elderly woman, and she said she was uh, looking out of the window of her small house and there by, by, the, by the sea, by the beach, which is where the fishermen work. You know, it's not beach, beach, you know, like mm-hmm. pleasure beach, sort of working seashore as well. She saw this young man um, in shorts and a T-shirt, uh, uh, obviously a European person, standing there looking quite lost, mm-hmm. um, and kind of looking around, uncertain about things. So after watching him for a little while, she went out with a small bowl of uh, rice or cassava or something like that, and a glass of water and said, uh, here, boy, come on, have something to eat and to drink, you know, just whatever. And this um, young man, who's obviously a, a traveler from Europe or from the United States, probably had his uh, Barclay card in his back pocket uh, and was quite okay and comfortable. He could maybe even pull out his iPhone and take a photograph of this old woman who was bothering him. Mm. And she was in tears about the, and she came back and told the story about how this poor boy seemed lost 
and didn't know what to do or where to go. And so I took him this bowl of rice and this glass of water, which, which of course he accepted graciously and moved on. But, but that's, she didn't understand, of course, that this boy could probably buy her water and her everything for her, this plastic. Um, but that's the kind of hospitality that I'm talking about. So in mm-hmm. some places, people are used to just giving in that way. You see somebody uh, in difficulty, you, you think, how can we help them? Yeah. I mean, here on the, the West Coast of the United States, you know, we have uh, a, a tremendous number of people who are, who are unhoused and in tremendous need on the street. And, and reading this book, <laughs> I, I was thinking how different the approach is to people living on the street, you know, at this time, you know, long, long ago, but also the way that those of us who live with people in such misery on the street and, and don't help them, right? I mean, these, these problems sometimes seem beyond the small kindnesses we're talking about. How that, yeah, that does something so. to you over time. Yeah, well, I think so. I think it's, uh, it, it is possibly to do with size, is to do with uh, uh, some kind of uh, bigger breakdown, is probably also to do with um, whatever, um, alcohol, drugs, that kind of thing, which make people dangerous. Um, so I, don't, I mean, obviously a big city um, experience is quite different from what you would find in a, presumably also even in the United States in a, in a, in a smaller community. Uh, I don't know, but certainly um, I do believe that kindness is, is not a is not an unexpected human response <laughs> to uh, to seeing people in difficulties. Yeah. yeah, but when you see people in difficulties that make you feel there might be a danger to you, then clearly you keep away. Yeah, I wanted to talk about a little bit of the narrative action of this book, in in part because so much of it is precipitated by this kind of unexplainable decision of Afia's older brother Ilyas, who had learned German and decides to sign up with the German colonial uh, forces, thereby sort of leaving her behind in a situation that he knew was dangerous for her. Mm. Writing this book, I mean, how did you even try to make sense of that character's decision for yourself, which left Afia in in such dire circumstances and, and abuse? Well, there are ways, there are ways, um, well, there's several things. First of all, it's not unheard of that people would uh, would embrace uh, the ethos and ideology of uh, the conqueror, even of their own land, because of, of the prestige of the conqueror and because of the power that and status that then accrues to the individual who associates himself, himself with the with the with the in with a more powerful force. I mean, of course, in your in the example of the United States, you have uh, the older Vietnamese people, for example, who chose to side with the American side and then had to repatriate and so. So, and this is you can find examples of this everywhere in, in France. You know, the, many of the people who are complicit or part of or supported the settler economy of Algeria had to mm-hmm. be for their own safety removed. So it's not unheard of at all for uh, for people when they have been vanquished to choose to side with the with the conqueror. 
because of the prestige, because of the power that, and the status that it gives you, because of the uniform, <laughs> because of uh, young people wanting a bit of adventure, and also because of the money that comes with it. So it's not unheard of for that to happen. Um, so, but do you remember Elias was also brought up, more or less, uh, educated and looked after by a German, a German settler family, in a in a way which is uh, patronizing, of course, but he wouldn't have known that um, or fully have understood that. And there is this uh, sense which other people have described in different ways, uh, where the colonized become so um, affiliated, so absorbed by the culture of the colonizer that uh, they kind of lose themselves in a sense um, and want to either say by the way they decorate their home or the food they eat or the way they speak or the way they dress or whatever, all of those kinds of things. Uh, they identify themselves as one of them uh, rather than one of whoever they came from, whatever their native cultures. So there is that dimension as well. So th these are the different ways in which people, I guess, become acculturated and become part of the colonizing culture without even knowing what they're doing, without necessarily being criminal about it, without necessarily being traitors to anything. They're just attracted, drawn. Maybe you might say from our distance, uh, the events that followed uh, the decolonization process, you might say, well, they're traitors or they're foolish or whatever. But it may not have seemed as horrible and cruel as that at the time. Mm. It may have seemed it's just making do, getting on with it. What I think in, in, in slave culture, you might call Uncle Tom or something like that. You know, these, these are not uh, admirable um, creatures, but you can see how it is that uh, somebody might get drawn into those kinds of uh, accommodations, you can say. So Elias is like that. Elias is one of those unfortunates in a way who uh, lost himself in this way that I'm describing. Uh, he was not calm enough to be able to say, I know what this means. This means I'm going to be some kind of colonial stooge or something like that. It wasn't possible to think quite so clearly in that way, for him anyway, and maybe for many other people. Mm -hmm. What befalls him, of course, later is that he, without realizing what's happening to him, he has now inserted himself into a much bigger narrative of racism um, as it happens in National Socialist Germany, but he has put himself into that story. And the outcome is what it is, which I will not mention. Yeah. Yeah, instead, within the book, he mostly haunts the people who are in it. I mean, Afia most especially, but also... Um, well, maybe how much how much should I give away here? <laughs> maybe I shouldn't give away too much. But you know your listeners. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, he, Ilias, this decision really haunts people in part because they keep seeming to try to figure it out. Like, why hasn't he contacted them? Why hasn't he come home? And I wondered if there were were there any echoes of that in your own experience of leaving? Did people say, "Hey, why don't you"? come back why you know why don't you you've gone but you could always return no no not at all because uh, of course i'm always interested in the leaving and returning and so on but in his case he uh in his case he he deliberately one assumes in any mm -hmm. case he mm -hmm. lost contact he uh 
And this is a kind of profound choice that he makes. That yeah. no, I, I want to be a German, um, or at least I don't want to return to that base. And if I tell them where I am, they'll say to me, "Why don't you come back?" Mm. So, so in a way that his his, and I'm sure this is not uncommon that people at some point say, "Okay, I'm I'm disappearing. I'm I'm not." Uh, these days it's difficult, of course, with iPhones and whatnot. But at one time it would have been quite easy. Um, when I first went to England, the only way I could get in touch with my family was either by letter or by ringing a neighbor and asking, because not everybody had a telephone, asking that neighbor to tell them that I would call back in two hours' time and blah, blah. So it's very easy to not do it. Um, and I guess there is a way in which if things are not working out, and this is the thing with dislocation uh, or migration or whatever you want to call it, if things are not working out, what news have you got? Apart from to say, it's horrible here. <laughs> or, or I'm really kind of messing up. I can't get a job. I'm, I'm rubbish. I'm no good. Um, so the silence is also a way of uh, just avoiding having to deliver that mm. um, I'm messing up. Mm. Did you ever have to tell your parents that? Uh, well, I didn't tell them that I was messing up. <laughs> I, just, I just kept quiet. Yeah. But I understand that that way, which you that people just simply or indeed, or indeed even fake the stories because mm -hmm. because there is an assumption um, less less easy now. But at a time when when communications were not so good. There is an assumption that it's better there, wherever it is, wherever you are, and it, it isn't, or if it isn't, then if you have to report to say that actually it's miserable here, yeah, you know, I live in a leaky, smelly, whatever, it's you who has failed. <laughs> right, right. We're talking with Nobel Prize winning novelist Abdul Razak Gurna about his novel, Afterlives. And we do want to hear from you. This was a book that really expanded my sense of the world. Is there one of those books for you? The number is 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are having a discussion with the Nobel Prize winning novelist Abdul Razak Gurna about his novel Afterlives. It comes out uh, in the U.S. this month. Uh, we had a listener, Mike, um, leave us uh, a message about The Crying of Lot 49, 
a book by Thomas Pynchon that expanded his view of the world. And I wanted to ask you about Thomas Pynchon in in part because in my own life, that was when I first started to read uh, about some of the colonial wars in Africa and their very specific kinds of cruelties and, and atrocities. And I wondered, like, as you you know, embarked on your career as a novelist and you're reading, you know, Americans or British people writing about these wars. What did you think that they were uh, leaving out? Well, there are, I mean, I do like uh, Crying of Lot 49 and I've taught it uh, as well in my time. Uh, what do they leave out? What they leave out is, uh, which they can't know about, is the the way it seemed um, for, for those who were receiving it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what they, well, no, it's okay, they can't do that. It's, that's our job to do that. Mm. Um, which is not to say that uh, there haven't been attempts made to do this, but but it's very difficult to 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 understand uh, because everything is driven uh, by, of course, by support and ideology of the culture you come from. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's actually really hard to to put yourself in the position of the of the person that you are subjecting. It's one of the things I, I was interested in, in 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 writing my novel Afterlives because I have there a German officer who is um, uncertain to some extent in this way. So he's both um, uh, somebody uh, who's fully apparently fully uh, part of the colonial ideology, but he also cannot resist, cannot not see that the person, young person that he's dealing with is a human being and therefore cannot resist acts of kindness. Mm-hmm. Now, I suspect this is a problem that many, many people uh, who are performing unpleasant tasks of this kind, where you're subjecting other people either through violence or through military means and so on. Um, and there may be many people in recent experiences of, uh, of the United States will know what I mean, uh, where you cannot carry this through fully because you can see that the people you're dealing with, despite the ideology you're, you are speaking, are actually uh, human beings who require your, um, well, your humanity, you, that you act in a human way to them. And, but in order to do so, you would have to say what we're doing is wrong. And that's not easy to do. In creating those depictions of the German officers, were you were you relying on historical accounts from that time, or were you relying on just imaginative force um, of how those people were feeling? Like, were there specific German officers that you were able to find accounts from, or, or anything like that? No, I made it all up. <laughs> You're good. What can you say? Yeah. Um, no, I just, just yeah. assumed. I, I just, like I've just described, I just assumed yeah. that it would have been, it would have been impossible for it not to be so. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that people w- would not have been divided about what they were doing. It would have been impossible for that not to be so. There would yeah. have had to be monsters, all of them, not to be divided about what, what was going on. Yeah. So really, I just sort of filled out the picture for myself to say, um, um, even as they were doing things, 
There were, there were, there was a very famous case which is referred to actually in the novel in a kind of lighthearted way of uh, a, a court case of one, one of the, uh, I forget the name now, I could have looked it up if I knew it was going to come up in a conversation, uh, of the, one of the German governors in Deutsche West Africa who was actually taken to court because it was shown that he was, he actually had uh, uh, African lovers, men lovers. Mm. Uh, and this became a notorious case. And I think in the end he was recalled. Uh, so there were these, these sorts of liaisons and relationships going on um, between the, uh, the Germans and the African people, uh, let alone, of course, uh, relations with uh, women who, who would have been um, probably in the normal way of conquerors had been part of the plunder of conquest. Mm. Um, so it, it isn't entirely kind of, uh, you know, invented this, this, this dilemma that uh, even oppressors have with their affections. Yeah. One of the ways that this very conflicted, complex relationship between Hamza specifically and different people, different Germans that he encounters is, you know, a, a book by Schiller. Uh, German author and has this kind of incredible symbolic and actual power in the in the book. I, I was wondering, is there a book that's moved through your life like that that you've encountered that you know either the physical object or the reading of that book has sort of carried with you through time in that way? Uh, no, not really, not in that way. But uh, you can imagine that in scarcity. Um, Hamza would not have come across many books mm -hmm. and nor would perhaps a, a colonizing army have been carrying lots of books with it. You'd only have been carrying the books that really matter to you, that were really important to you. So it's, it's both to suggest that Schiller was important as a poet to German people, but Schiller was important to this particular officer, both because of the poetry, but also because of that connection with the, the brother that he speaks about, the, the officer's brother who had died in a fire, who probably would have been a poet from the suggestion that uh, would have become a poet. He hasn't uh, perhaps perished in the fire. So the, the so Schiller then comes to represent both um, some aspect of uh, German achievement, which is not conquest, but which is something else, mm. which is poetry. Uh, it also becomes part of the, the kind of cruel colonial joke that the officer plays. I'm going to teach you German so you can read Schiller. Uh, like saying to somebody who's learning English, I'm going to read you English so you can read Shakespeare. It's a long shot. It's a really long shot uh, to, to learn English and to be reading Shakespeare. Uh, so it's also a way of kind of um, being frivolous about this mm -hmm. kindness. Um, and because the book exists, I saw a picture of the book. I haven't actually seen the book at all, but I saw a picture of the book and I thought that book is something one would value if you possessed it, that particular edition mm. of the book. Um, so I gave it to the officer and made it leave it, leave it behind for Hamza. And I thought this would be a gesture, which would be, as you say, symbolic, would be a way of saying, here's something of great value to me. Um, and to me as a representative of something else, you can have it. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I assume you've taught many, you know, second generation immigrants uh, in England. And I, I wonder 
how the kind of either the distance or the closeness that you perceive in the way that you see the colonial and post-colonial time versus, you know, kids who've spent their entire lives uh, in, in England growing up, you know, within that system? Well, it's not only second generation kids, of course, it's also English. A uh, majority of uh, the students who went through my hands, as it were, <laughs> would have been English students rather than uh, non-English students because of the part of the country where we are. Mm -hmm. uh, most of our student body, until recently, is changing. But until recently, mostly have been uh, English and European. We're very close to Europe and we are... We used to get a lot of students from different uh, European universities and so on. They are not dumb. They know about it. And they, they come to it with, uh, with um, you know, real desire to, to know more and to, to be informed. Many of my students have gone on to become uh, teachers in, in the same, you know, speaking. This is the beauty of being a teacher, of course that you teach people who then themselves become teachers, pass it on. Uh, yeah, so it's okay. It's, they don't, there is already a great deal of work being done by people here in, 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 scholarly, in scholarly terms, I mean, um, and also in a, in, a, in a general sense. But certainly the uh, British scholarship is not at all backward or whatever when it comes to issues of colonialism and issues of empire and issues such as the ones that I address. Yeah. I mean, I guess what I'm thinking about is, you know, just my own father came from Mexico about 18 years old and I think was kind of pointed towards the U.S. from that point forward uh, and and not really thinking about the, the old country. And I think many people in my position, because we don't know that place, we go kind of searching after it in our various different ways. And people, you know, you could Pick, pick a country, you know, Afghanistan, Vietnam, sure. uh, Korea, a lot of the different groups that are here in the Bay Area, um, Chinese immigrants, of course. Like, and I wonder if that's kind of a difference you see it in the, their hunger for that knowledge is kind of flowing in a different direction. Yeah, that, there is that hunger. Um, there is definitely. Um, I guess, in a way, because the many migrant people uh, in the UK live in the big cities. Mm -hmm. And in the big cities, there's already a community which can, to some extent, I think, probably satisfy some of that hunger by uh, kind of recreating community uh, organizations and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe it's not quite as mixed as yours. You know, in other words, there isn't such a great deal of variety as it were. Um, of different peoples. Um, there are definitely very strong West Indian communities, uh, Asian communities. Uh, the, now, I suppose in time, we'll see more of the uh, Middle Eastern and Arab because so many of them have been coming in recent times. But they're still at that stage of not quite belonging, if you see what I mean. Your father's been there since he was 18, and Mexico is just over the border. Uh, Whereas uh, I think when for a lot of the Middle Eastern communities that are here, it's still a very long way away, different language, religion, different, all kinds. But the West Indians are pretty well dug in. So I think they feel they feel that they, they have a base. And of course, the Asian communities so dug in that you have uh, one of them running for prime minister uh, at the moment in, in the United Kingdom. 
-hmm. So because there is such a strong um, rootedness here, I think, I think quite possibly that in itself becomes satisfying for uh, people of a certain generation. Whether that will be so next, next lot, I don't know. But I think at the moment, um, it's easy enough for connecting with the, the Caribbean. And because South Asians' success in this country has been so dramatic uh, that it's maybe possible to identify with those. With those connections. What it's like for Africans is different yeah. because they don't yet have that sort of uh, um, confidence, maybe. They're still in the process of being treated as uh, refugees, asylum seekers, criminalized narratives, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Just want to note that you were a professor for a very long time at the University of Kent. I'm not sure if we, if we said that. Um, I want to take, uh, just get a call, squeeze a call in here. Uh, Katie in San Francisco, you had a book for us. Hey, Alexis. Um, thanks so much for this conversation to both of you. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to share a book that I read recently. It's been around for a while, but um, it's called The Fine Balance by Rohinton Mystery. Um, and the reason I wanted to share that book um, on the note of like expanding mm -hmm. your understanding is the book is set in like the mid seventies in India, which is at the time where um, Indira Gandhi was in power. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, the book's called the fine balance and it, it, it's a, it's a whole epic um, sometimes difficult to read, but worth it because um, I have an, a number of friends in India. I was speaking with um, an older um, gentlemen. And um, I said, I read this book and I'm learning about what Indira, what happened under Gandhi's mm -hmm. daughter. Um, yeah. It was called The Emergency, in which, you know, one of the ways that she attempted to bring the country out of like poverty, I guess, or raise the profile was, you know, actually basically genocide. Um, and forced sterilization of particularly lower caste people. And I think in the US, like, we didn't, no one ever talks about that. Um, yeah, it's one of like many so, histories that feels like um, is, it's not, a, it's not a piece of the, the standard education. And uh, Katie, I just wanted to be able to uh, bounce this to Abdul Razak uh, quickly here, just because we're getting towards the end of the show. Thank you so much for, uh, for sharing that um, book recommendation. You know, Abdul Razak, I've heard you say that this is one of the reasons why you wrote this book, was to, to bring one of these histories that has been um, ignored in, in many you know, European countries as well as uh, in the U.S., um, do you want to talk a little bit about that that as a larger project? Yeah, well, it's only been ignored in a certain way. That is to say, it's, uh, it's not that historians and scholars don't know about it. Mm -hmm. um, but it has not quite uh, um, entered, as you were, the popular knowledge of uh, the 1914-1918 war. What people think about that war, they think about Europe and what happened in Europe, perhaps they might think about what happened in the Middle East, but they don't think about how that, those events that, or that conflict uh, occurred in, in Africa and parts of Africa, or indeed other parts as well, um, 
So the, the, there was fighting to some extent in Southwest Africa, what is now Namibia and Cameroon, but the worst of it was that Deutsche West Africa. And it just somehow never captured the, the popular imagination. So you think it's always better to know than not to know. We knew about it because it was just next door to us. Hundreds of thousands of people, it's estimated, estimated 300,000 people died during those, uh, the years of the war. Almost all of them are local people who died, civilians, I mean, not combatants, who died of disease and starvation and punitive raids of various kinds. It's better to know than not to know. Yeah. Now that you have won the Nobel Prize, just as we get to the end of the show here, do you want to write a different kind of book? Do you feel like you have a new access to do, do something else? Or are you going to keep going, just doing what you have done and creating these amazing stories why change <laughs> yeah it's worked out so far i guess yeah, i got here like this why change now? <laughs> are you working on something new right now well i was before the swedish academy did me this honor but um of course since then it hasn't really been possible to do very much more than speak to lots of interesting people like you <laughs> well we appreciate taking time away from your writing and i really really look forward to to reading more of your work and thank you just so much we know it's you know you're joining us from england late there thank you so much thank you thank you very much bye-bye we have been talking with the nobel prize winning novelist abdul razak gurna about his novel being released this month it's called afterlives this really is a beautiful book it is as you've heard uh, a history of east africa as well as a beautiful story just about the way that people keep on, find each other, and do each other small kindnesses. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening 
because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.